Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Samuel Harrington. He is here to talk about his excellent book, At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. This book outlines specific active and passive steps that older or terminally ill patients and their families can take to ensure they live the last of their days comfortably and die the best death possible. Sam, welcome to the show. Oh, Jeremy, thank you very much for ha- having me. I appreciate this opportunity. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, certainly. I uh, was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, maybe that's starting too soon for you. Uh, and then uh, uh, I wanted to be a physician from about the time I was in high school on. And ultimately, after getting through medical school at the University of Wisconsin, I chose internal medicine and subsequently gastroenterology as specialists, uh, as specialties that I thought uh, suited my interests. And in particular with gastroenterology, I was um, interested in the concept of uh, scopes and uh, minimally invasive surgery, which actually, and the scopes, of course, predated what is, has become minimally invasive surgery now and has revolutionized the surgical field. And if I'd foreseen that, I might have ended up being a surgeon. But in any event, I uh, really had no great aspirations other than to be the best possible gastroenterologist that I could. And I ultimately uh, trained in Atlanta and got a job in Washington, D.C., where I practiced for 30-plus years. And while I was in Washington, I served on the board of a hospice, which uh, really drew me into end-of-life discussions. Uh, But then I was also on the board of the local community hospital where I worked, which uh, was ultimately um, taken under the wing of a larger uh, organization, Johns Hopkins uh, Medical uh, Group. And I saw uh, a small community hospital become part of a bigger system, and that also informed some of my ideas. So, uh, when I when my career uh, seemed to have plateaued, and I began to look around for other things, and became interested in uh, refor- medical reform or healthcare reform, uh, I th- this uh, st- this book started to percolate in my head, and. Ultimately, uh, I couldn't do it while I was practicing. I didn't have the 
mental or physical bandwidth. But when I stopped practicing, I started writing and that's where we are. The topic of your book is something that everyone either has experienced or will experience at some point, either with themselves or with a loved one. You know, the topic of facing end of life or end of life care and, and, and how to deal with that. And it's it's in your book, one of the things you talk about is how hard it is for not only the people that are in that situation, but their family members and their doctors to talk about, which I think this book is really excellent at outlining. Um, so I wonder if you could, you know, share what your ultimate inspiration to write at peace was. Well, I was inspired to write about it by uh, two sort of broad arcs that occurred across uh, my 35 years of training and practice. And that is uh, the arc of medicine, uh, as I saw it in America, changing from um, a, a healing art uh, into a giant commercial enterprise, which where end-of-life uh, issues moved from comfort care and support towards sort of transactional treatments. Uh, we were able to do so much when I went into medicine in, uh, when I went into my practice in 1982, uh, it was a much simpler time. And uh, then this explosion of, of technology complicated uh, our end-of-life perspective. And then if I superimpose on the arc of medicine, I superimpose on that the arc of my parents' aging and decline, uh, there's a giant uh, disconnect between what I was doing two patients in the hospital and what my parents wanted done for them at home. Uh, there was a giant disconnect between uh, the way uh, professional, uh, I mean, aggressive physicians look at end of life and what we really should be or, and what my parents wanted. And this book is an attempt to resolve that. Uh, so I, I was really inspired by the idea of empowering elderly patients and their families to make better end-of-life decisions, uh, basically because I was witnessing too many elderly patients die in intensive care units, not because they didn't um, want treatment, uh, but because they didn't really understand the likelihood of their coming out of the intensive care unit uh, in a healthy way, um, they didn't understand that when they went into the in intensive care unit, they either would not come out alive or they would come out quite diminished because of complications and a prolonged hospitalization. And I, I felt that uh, somebody needed to sort of stand up and help people understand um, that patients and families oh, have a very high expectation of what's going to happen, and that doesn't always pan out for them. Will you explain for our listeners why you feel, as you discuss in the book, that American healthcare is failing the elderly? I believe that the American healthcare system uh, is built to treat acute illnesses. It is built to treat aggressively. It is uh, built to uh, give good quality care uh, within any given hospital, uh, but that uh, elderly patients are sort of a special category uh, in the sense that uh, doctors approach illness uh, the way generals approach an enemy in the battlefield. They want to uh, engage the enemy with overwhelming force. And, uh, and doctors uh, want to cure patients. And when the, there is something to be cured, we address it. But aggressive, aggressive treatment uh, rapidly or frequently moves into uh, excessive treatment and ultimately futile treatment with uh, elderly patients because when a person is dying either with old age or dying of old age, uh, that is a battle that cannot be won. And so uh, American medicine has to learn how to um, uh, approach that special circumstance differently. Uh, one of the things, this is segueing into a sort of a sophisticated 
um, I hope I didn't go, don't get lost here, uh, analysis of how systems uh, don't always help us. Um, every hospital uses systems to improve their quality of care, which I applaud. Uh, the idea of checklists in operating rooms and um, having uh, specialists step in uh, under every circumstance uh, and having um, specialized nurses and nurse managers and case managers work with patients through problems. This helps uh, improve outcomes for any given process, whether the patient is being treated for an orthopedic uh, joint replacement or a heart attack or, in my case, colitis, an inflamed colon or inflamed intestine. So we plug people into a system and the care is kind of uh, automatically produced. People work through a process sort of like being on a conveyor belt. But when it comes to mm -hmm. um, elderly patients, that blinds us to the fact that we're dealing with somebody who has a shorter horizon to approach. And I liken it to uh, the way we engineer highways. We engineer highways to be safer at a given speed. Uh, unfortunately, drivers don't say, well, this highway is engineered to be safe at 65, so I'm going to go 64 miles an hour. We say, well, this, driveway, this highway is safer than uh, the last one was on, I was on. I'll just uh, pick up the speed. And Doctors have that same sense when we plug a patient into our system. We say, oh, my last 85-year-old did very well with this. Maybe this 90-year-old patient will do well with this. And we sort of push the limits of things. And uh, the idea of uh, – so that's one way that systems have, don't work well for elderly patients or how the American healthcare system isn't designed to help them. Uh, another much broader perspective is that American healthcare has been hugely influenced by commercial uh, practices, uh, commercialized practices. Uh, the U.S. Uh, healthcare system has a has conflicting mandates or imperatives. We are we have to take care of patients, but we also have to make a profit to keep uh, moving ahead, and so. Uh, with all the commercialization and advertising on television and media manipulation, um, we have a whole generation of people, largely baby boomers like myself, who are either becoming elderly uh, or are in fact helping their parents with end-of-life decisions. So there's this giant over-expectation that everything is going to work out well and if we can just cure this pneumonia, you're going to be fine. If we can just uh, fix this colitis, you'll be fine. When in fact, every time we treat elderly patients, uh, the acute process might be uh, improved, but we also accelerate the aging of the chronic processes that are uh, under that are part of the aging process. So there's a lot there's a there's a lot to the concept that the our healthcare system isn't built to help the chronically ill, uh, weak, elderly person. And my book is focused on elderly patients not who may or may not be terminal. It's really not focused on younger patients who uh, are, do, in fact, struggle with terminal illnesses. So the media and, and culture in America encourages people to idealize uh, beauty and youth and do everything they can, you know, as you said, with the commercialization to feel younger than their years you, while eating right, exercising and having an overall good lifestyle is, is good, great for someone. Uh, it, it offers no guarantees. Uh, can you talk about the impact of this false sense of immortality and the importance of having what you call a strategy to die better? Uh, yes. We in the United States consider health, we, we sort of equate health with a virtue. So uh, by uh, implication, uh, we deny our mortality. 
and we are subject to um, promises by the government, promises by the media, promises by PR, uh, public relations uh, organizations helping market uh, uh, hospitals or treatments. And uh, we tend to believe that. Americans are an optimistic people. We uh, believe in American exceptionalism. We believe that the American healthcare system is the best in the world when, in fact, it is not. Uh, it might be the best in terms of convenience and speed, but in terms of outcomes, it is definitely not the best. And we listen to politicians who talk about moonshots to cure cancer and news stories about how cures for dementia are, are right around the corner. And uh, we tend to believe that those are true when, in fact, they are largely the result of uh, advertising hyperbole. And we also are inundated with uh, advertising on television and the print media uh, that uh, uh, semi-promise, they promise uh, through implication, uh, excellent outcomes and for a variety of things, including lung cancer. And uh, that's one of the things that's on television constantly, new treatments for lung cancer. Again, we are being manipulated into believing things that are not really as uh, uh, as promising as they sound. Uh, now, the United States is only one of two countries that uh, allows direct-to-consumer advertising, and the other one is New Zealand, which is extremely small by comparison, of course, as a developed country. So no other giant developed country allows this. And what the, the end result is that we have really high pharmaceutical prices and we have patients asking for uh, specific treatments when, in fact, they may not be appropriate for that patient. But it is easier, physician, it is easier for a physician to uh, move ahead with that kind of treatment than to uh, counsel a patient against it. Uh, in my book, I uh, tell a story of one of my uh, patients who was a, a 86 or 87 when she first came to me. She was an extremely um, active woman who uh, was very social, and she developed uh, an inflamed colon late in life. It's called ulcerative colitis, and uh, she did not respond well to typical uh, treatments. Uh, the symptoms of ulcerative colitis are crampy abdominal pain and uh, diarrhea, sometimes uncontrollable. And she found this extraordinarily inconvenient, which of course it is. It's a terrible illness. Uh, but sometimes it gets better spontaneously, just as it had occurred in her spontaneously. And uh, newer treatments were just coming out at that time called, um, they were in biologic treatments where uh, they altered the immune system uh, through an infusion of a biologic material that uh, was basically an antibody that fought the uh, the inflammation process. And her family came to me, having uh, seen this on television, and asked me to uh, give her this infusion. And I had used it on other patients, but felt it hadn't been studied well in elderly patients. And I was quite hesitant. So I, I, I mentioned all this. I told them how hesitant I was. And I asked them to uh, seek a consultation from a, um, uh, a specialist in ulcerative colitis, and, uh, which they did. And the second opinion uh, did not uh, argue with them, plugged this patient into the system, meaning that it was easier to write an order to start the treatment. Uh, then to have a very long discussion on the subject. And in two weeks, the patient was feeling much, much better. She was absolutely uh, happy and thrilled with the outcome of her therapy. And two weeks after that, she had double pneumonia based on a germ that was released because her immune system was, um, was uh, weakened by the biologic infusion she'd received. And two weeks after that, she died in the intensive care unit. Um, and of course, I see a direct linear relationship to advertising and this woman's premature death. 
but not everybody will agree with me. In any event, that is the kind of process that I would prefer not to see. And in terms of strategies to avoid that, I think people have to um, think about where they will say no to medical care. Now, in terms of the strategy, her, uh, her situation is perhaps not the best example in terms of saying no to uh, the biologic treatment, although I would like people to think that. But her strategy might have been to say, I will try the biologic treatment, but I will set limits as to what should happen to me afterwards. Uh, for example, if I'm so sick that I have to go into the intensive care unit, do not do X, Y, or Z as a result of it. Um, so that is, uh, that is the kind of strategic thinking that I'm trying to promote. Uh, let me step back and maybe I can make that point a little bit clearer. 80 or 90% of elderly patients, uh, when asked by medical professionals in medical surveys, express a preference to die at home as quietly as possible. Uh, and yet, 60% of elderly patients die in hospitals or nursing homes uh, shortly after hospitalization. And uh, that disconnect needs to be reconciled. And my point is that it's fundamental that if you want to say, if you want to uh, die at home, a person has to know when it is appropriate to say no to hospitalization. And, and particularly in the elderly, hospitalization by itself takes a toll and people who go in tend to come out weaker uh, even if they are uh, successfully cured of the problem that took them in. So uh, in a sense, saying no to hospitalization or saying no to um, uh, intensive care unit treatment is the message of the book and the strategy that I hope people will employ. In your book, one of the things you talk about is the importance of understanding the median survival of an illness. Uh, in fact, you compare it to the game Plinko from the show Price is Right. Uh, can, you, can you please talk about this for our listeners and explain what you mean when you say they should avoid magical thinking and the median is, is the real message? Well, uh, uh, thank you. Uh, there is a chapter called The Median is the Message, and that is a riff off of a very famous uh, medical circles essay by Stephen Jay Gould, who wrote, the median is not the message because of his experience with an illness called mesothelioma. In his uh, situation, uh, he was about 41 or 42 when he was diagnosed with a rare cancer, almost always fatal, uh, that occurred uh, in his abdomen called a mesothelioma. And at that time, the median survival of uh, mesothelioma was, I believe, eight months. Uh, so he said, as a scientist, he looked and saw that some people survive much longer than eight months. And that's called the long tail of a survival curve. And he, uh, he writes eloquently about how... Uh, he made the, the decision to work hard to be in that long tail. And in fact, he lived 17 more years and then died of lung cancer after a two or three year illness. Now, uh, his eloquent uh, essay moved many people, but I looked at it somewhat differently. I noted that uh, he was diagnosed at a young age and he did not, in fact, take the treatments that uh, were used to define the survival curve of eight months. He was lucky enough to take a different treatment that worked stupendously well for him. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I appreciate that. That's wonderful. But that is not how uh, survival curves are generally created. Survival curves are created by um, the multiplicity of decisions and, and the procedures that occur to patients when they are in being 
treated medically. And that's where the my image of a Plinko board comes in, because every time a patient hits a decision, they either get better or get worse, or they treatment, they get better, they get worse, sort of like a Plinko disc uh, fall into the bottom from the top to the bottom of the price is right game. And ultimately, uh, we cannot will where we end up on the bottom of the uh, Plinko board. We can sort of game it and try and see uh, and hope that we'll bounce way over into the long survival curve, but we can't uh, will ourselves as to where we will end up there. And when it comes to elderly patients, um, I believe the median is the message or certainly closer to the message. And that is because elderly patients start an illness from a of a, a disadvantage point of weakness, frailty, and chronic illness. So they are less likely to make it to the median uh, than a younger person. So let me give a specific example that I believe is in the book. When my mother at age 82 was diagnosed with lung cancer, it was staged and determined to be stage four, meaning quite advanced. And the median survival for stage four lung cancer at the time of her diagnosis was 10 months. Now, I looked at my 82-year-old mother, and I, I knew that she was frail. She had already survived breast cancer. She had multiple complications of osteoporosis. And in my mind, the likelihood that she would be one of the people to live to 10 months uh, was not great. Uh, and I said to her, as I tried to explain the concept of median survival, uh, you know, mom, if there were a hundred people in this apartment with uh, stage four lung cancer, it would be very crowded, but, uh, in 10 months, uh, 50 of them would not be here. Uh, we just don't know exactly which 50, although the point I try to make in the chapter is that the one, either the ones who are quite lucky or the ones who start from a younger, healthier vantage point are the ones who are more likely to make it to 10 months than my mother. What are some of the most common illnesses for people over the age of 65 that lead to death? Uh, How do they lead to death, and why should we consider old age to be a diagnosis? Well, uh, medicine can be as complicated as we want to make it, or, um, or hopefully... Uh, simpler if we try and change our perspective. So if we think of, if we make it complicated, every single person has uh, an individual outcome that we cannot try and characterize and understand. But in answer to your question, the CDC uh, reports on diseases according to uh, demographics and the CDC clusters everybody over the age of 65 into a single demographic and 90% of people over the age of 65 die from one of six diseases and they are uh, congestive heart failure, cancer, uh, chronic lung disease, stroke, diabetes and dementia in order of frequency. and. My, the point I try and make in one of the chapters is that if you can put yourself in the category of chronic uh, congestive heart failure or cancer or chronic lung disease or one of the others, uh, then you can foresee some things that happen to people with those illnesses, and then you can uh, see commonalities that occur at the end of uh, life with one of the complicated by one of these chronic illnesses. So for example, people with congestive heart failure will uh, die of a variety of things. There's no way I can give an exhaustive list of them, but they will either have heart attacks or arrhythmias or more commonly die of fluid accumulation in the lungs that leads to pneumonia uh, or they will be bed bound and get uh, bed sores and uh, weakness from prolonged bed rest. And 
uh, the complications of bed rest. Um, similarly, patients with uh, chronic lung disease will uh, have uh, a tendency to get pneumonias and, uh, and respiratory infections. They will uh, they tend to be thinner than other uh, patients because they have so many uh, it takes so much uh, energy to breathe and their appetites may be suppressed, but they too will become bed bound and will become subject to infections of the bed bound population. Um, people with um, cancer die, unfortunately, of multiple, multiple complications related to cancer, but frequently infections and pneumonia will be involved. And my point is, if we can look for commonalities like pneumonia, uh, mm-hmm. things that can be um, illnesses that can be electively declined, uh, where we electively decline treatment, but would otherwise offer a comfortable uh, path to a comfortable death when palliated with other medications. Uh, these are uh, parts of the strategy that one can address if you can recognize the illness that's uh, likely to carry you away. And just as I was willing to talk to my mother about lung cancer, its potential com- complications and prognosis, uh, I think every patient uh, should be able to talk to their primary care doctor or their specialist about that particular disease that is um, the most important one complicated in their life and understand a little bit about uh, how it might uh, end and how, what they can do to either control to control that end to manipulate it rather than control the end, I should say, either to influence a quieter death or, uh, or not. Uh, I'd like to, I'll tell a story that I think is central to my book about my father and how he envisioned things, at least briefly. Uh, my father was a very healthy man at the age of 88. He certainly appeared healthy. He was quite vigorous, completely independent, living alone and uh, leading. He was helping other neighbors get to a uh, community center for their uh, water aerobics class, etc., cetera, uh, because some of them had given up driving, but he had not. In any event, he had seen his doctors and he had what was called an abdominal aortic aneurysm noted and monitored. Now, this aneurysm is a ballooned blood vessel that uh, an aneurysm uh, is a balloon blood vessel that tends to grow, and when it grows, it threatens rupture, and when it ruptures, uh, terrible complications arise. And my father was aware of this because he had had a uh, client, a legal client, who had died of a ruptured aneurysm in his chest. Well, my father's aneurysm was in his abdomen, and at age 88, uh, two internists and three surgeons had told him to have major surgery to permanently repair it. And I thought that the big, such a big operation would threaten his independent existence by putting him in the hospital for three weeks at a minimum, and if a complication for much longer, some nursing home convalescence. And when he got home, he might not be as strong as he had been, and he might not be as, as independent as he wanted to be. So I was counseling him to take a temporary procedure called uh, an endovascular repair, which is like a giant cardiac catheterization to put strengthening uh, coils in his aneurysm. And this seemed like a very logical thing to do from a medical perspective because he would probably live uh, three to five more years without complication, and then we would readdress the problem. And he would not be in the hospital uh, for at all. He Hopefully it could be done as an outpatient. And my father looked at me as if I was uh, speaking a different language because he, he, when I talked about this temporary procedure, he furrowed his brow and he pointed his finger at me and he, pur- he pursed his lips and he said, Sam, why would I want to fix something that's going to carry me away the way that I want to go quickly and decisively? And uh, I was quite taken aback. But this was his vision. He had this 
concept that if he uh, if he declined emergency surgery, he would uh, take palliative pain medicine and be dead within hours or a day at the most. And obviously, there's a naivete to that and a randomness to it. And yet it, it was his way of seeing an illness, uh, seeing an end to that illness, and then manipulating it. Uh, and it was to what he perceived his advantage to control it to the degree he could control it. And this was visualizing an end to an illness, which is, I believe, where we started this conversation. And if everybody were to look at their illness, uh, and in this case, I'm, I'm trying to encourage people to fall into one of those six categories and saw a, a something that they could do to decline aggressive treatment at some point to say no to medicalization, uh, then they will be moving toward a more comfortable death. Now, most of us uh, will not have an opportunity to decline emergency surgery uh, the way my father had hoped to. But some of us will have that opportunity. Some of us with congestive heart failure will have an opportunity to say no to a pacemaker uh, uh, or uh, other mechanical assistance for uh, a weak heart. Some of us will be able to say no to or discontinue dialysis for kidney failure. Uh, many of us will have an opportunity to say no to a third, fourth, or fifth course of chemotherapy for a cancer. And for those of us, if we're lucky enough to live to uh, a very advanced age, uh, 85, 90, 95, uh, many of us will have an opportunity to say no to antibiotics for routine infections that plague uh, the chronically ill and frail patients. So uh, that is how, if we, can, if we can see the illnesses that are influencing us and uh, come up with, uh, understand how they might come to an end, uh, we can... Uh, influence that end and avoid too much treatment. You, you talk about the importance of recognizing this pattern of recurrent systems or symptoms, treatment, deterioration, and stabilization. If, if one recognizes this cycle of unproductive treatment and progressive decline, you suggest they consider refusing treatment and choosing comfort over a prolonged and painful dying process. Uh, in fact, there is even a chapter uh, in which you have a few hypothetical death certificates uh, from common causes of death and work your way backwards from them. Um, doing this provides insight into where in the dying process the best death might have occurred. Uh, can you talk to us about the insight provided by this exercise and the importance of creating a vision of where one's best death might occur and sharing that vision of comfort with family, friends, and physicians? I use the, death cert the chapter uh, on death certificates as kind of a shorthand way of presenting a variety of uh, diseases so that people can see uh, common endpoints and a way of looking at um, death retrospectively uh, because sometimes retrospective uh, viewing of things is informative. And uh, so using those death certificates, as you say, I sort of plot a course in each one and then tell people that this is where somebody might have chosen to take a different course and to go home and uh, and be more comfortable. Um, one of the, uh, uh, and this is part of the creation of a vision of where, uh, where people should, uh, a vision of a person's death. But let me give a different example of how retrospective uh, analysis helps us. Um, medical futility is very difficult to define, and most of us try not 
to define it. Uh, what is futile care? Where does uh, care segue from uh, good care to aggressive care to futile care? Where, for example, in the case of the woman with the ulcerative colitis who went to the, the second opinion with a specialist, got the infusion, got better, and then got worse uh, from double pneumonia, uh, where did uh, where might she have said or her family have said care is uh, this care has become futile. <clears throat> was it when she went into the intensive care unit? Was it when they put in the breathing tube? Was it a week after the breathing tube that she hadn't gotten better? Uh, these are uh, difficult to define, but I believe that futile care is easily seen in retrospect when we look at the last treatment that our loved one endured and when we say to ourselves, I wish we had not done that to my mother, I wish we had not done that to my aunt or uncle, that defines futile treatment. And the, the point is that we want to try and foresee that and avoid it. And I think experienced doctors should be able to help us with that. Um, and we should we need people to help us understand prognosis and help us understand um, uh, uh, you know help us with our vision. Let me go back to the vision idea for a minute. I think the vision helps us to have end of life conversations about <coughs> the use of breathing machines or dialysis or um, uh, uh, feeding tubes, and uh, my father's vision of declining emergency surgery is a kind of extreme vision, but uh, it, a vision comes in many forms, and if we can understand it, we can use that to get better answers about some of these aggressive treatments. So uh, I will point to a quote I use in the book from Woody Allen, uh, who said famously that he was not afraid to die. He just didn't want to be there when it happened. Well, that his vision is to die in his sleep. Uh, or That's my interpretation of it. And um, that can inform his family about how they should address things. If there's any, uh, if there's any treatment that would allow him to die in his sleep, that's sort of where they want to go with it. Uh, another using another comedian, Groucho Marx famously said, uh, I want to live forever or I plan to live forever or die trying. Well, that's a vision of dying in the intensive care unit. And that, that opens up that discussion. Do you, you really mean that Mr. Marx? Okay. Well, now let's talk about what that means. And here, here, the, here's what can happen in the intensive care unit. Uh, I, now this is, uh, a bit of a segue, I gave a lecture recently at Yale, and I learned that uh, family members are allowed to round on uh, patients, go with the doctors and nurses when they see family members in the intensive care unit. And this, of course, helps family members understand what is going on when patients are being treated there. This was in, the, in particular in the surgical intensive care unit. But a light bulb went on in my head saying, you know what, this is really going to inform the next generation of that family as to what happens in the intensive care unit. Because some people, not only will they see and understand what's happening to their loved one, but when those things don't work out well, they will understand, well, maybe that's not for me when my time comes to be there. And so I think this is a wonderful uh, development in more forward-thinking intensive care units. I think that we as Americans don't uh, like to acknowledge terminal illnesses, uh, uh, and yet it's critical to our, uh, our, to us, to me, to my patients, or my, giving advice to my patients, that we acknowledge that this is the illness that's going to carry us away. So now let us um, cope with it. it, it one way or another. Uh, the only illness in America that we acknowledge as terminal is uh, ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, commonly known as Lou Gehrig's disease. When somebody is diagnosed with ALS, 
everybody says to themselves, oh my, that's a terminal illness. And that's largely because it's a, a comparatively infrequent illness and there's no advertising about advances uh, in its treatment, in my opinion, whereas other illnesses like cancer or dementia are equally terminal at some point, but we are bombarded with uh, promises of treatment and we tend to believe that we're going to, that they're going to uh, get better. So we tend not to say, oh, this is, this is terminal. Uh, we tend to say, oh, I'll get through this. We'll beat this. We'll, we'll carry on. And of course we should uh, struggle as far as we can, but then we have to recognize when this particular illness has moved from a, from a terminal uh, diagnosis to a terminal condition, meaning uh, less than a year to live or less than six months to live. And I think trying to be rational about it is, is a very important and, and ignoring it is a way to uh, end up getting treated more than we would want thinking, okay, I'll just have one more treatment. This will be fine. Go into the hospital, uh, have a complication. And then the momentum to treat carries us on into more treatments, ultimately into the intensive care unit and ultimately into the death that we hadn't really prepared ourselves for. Can you please provide and explain the punchline of the joke? Uh, do you know why they nail coffins shut? Okay. Um, when I was a young gastroenterologist, uh, I was asked to see a patient in consultation by a family physician who had asked me to see uh, a, a man who had stomach cancer and he had multiple obstructions in his stomach and his oncologist had recommended um, a variety of tubes to vent the stomach while chemotherapy was given some time to work. And per, the oncologist had recommended this uh, largely because uh, the family had said that they thought their loved one, or their father, was too old to have major surgery. And I went, I saw the patient and uh, felt that it was very unlikely that chemotherapy was going to be uh, beneficial in any uh, rapid way, and that uh, the obstructions in the stomach were, in fact, a surgical problem, uh, and that my various tubes that I would put in as a gastroenterologist were not likely to make uh, a, a diff uh, to uh, improve him symptomatically enough uh, for the chemotherapy to work. So we had a very long discussion. And ultimately, I recommended that uh, he seek palliative care. And the family ultimately uh, came to agree with that conclusion. And I left the room at some point and asked the family practitioner that, who, had, who had brought me in as a consultant uh, what the oncologist was thinking when he, when he made these uh, remarkable recommendations. And the family practitioner looked at me and he said, Sam, you know why they nail coffins shut? And then he, I, I said, no. And he said, to keep the oncologists out. And that's a, a fair, fairly harsh judgment of oncologists. But there was a time when oncologists were uh, less sophisticated than they are now. My story dates back 30 plus years. And, uh, they do, there is a tendency in, in oncology to treat very aggressively, uh, very late in the disease. And uh, many of us uh, look at that and say, if it's, and question that kind of perspective. But we, as doctors, have to question all our perspectives. Uh, I put in uh, feeding tubes and other uh, tubes and uh, what are called stents, things to open up clogged passages into patients that in retrospect, uh, I came to believe were overly aggressive. And I stopped doing some of those things by the end of my career. And uh, so I'm not trying to condemn all oncologists, but I, I think every physician who is a subspecialist 
uh, or a specialist uh, has to question uh, what we're doing to a patient instead of what we're doing for them when we are uh, asked to do some of the highly skilled things we do at the end of a long life. This is something actually my family recently experienced, unfortunately, where a member of our family was terminally ill from cancer and was provided with a false sense of hope and encouraged to undergo aggressive treatment instead of entering into hospice care until very late in the process. Um, It felt like there was no compassion or regard for her comfort. It was a very heartbreaking experience for my family, uh, and it was an awful and painful experience for her. Uh, As a doctor, how and when would you have what uh, Dr. Atul Gawande calls the hard conversation? Well, the hard conversation frequently comes to a specialist like myself when we are asked to walk into a room, such as the case I described with a patient with the the stomach obstruction, uh, and there's no way to get out of it. Um, So the hard conversation sort of comes to us, and uh, we have to, I believe we have to deal with it rather than simply say, okay, I'll put in the tubes uh, and uh, I'll get you on the schedule, put in the tubes tomorrow, see you later. Uh, We really have to have that discussion. And um, I think you started the question with the concept of hope and false hope. And I think that is an enormously important concept because uh, everyone is worried about eliminating hope when we, when we have the hard conversation, when we talk about the difficult prognosis. Uh, a famous uh, surgical writer, Sherwin Newland, who wrote uh, a book about um, called uh, How We Die in the, that came out in about 1992, wrote uh, that hope is with reference to his own brother, who he, sure, Dr. Newland, the surgeon, advised to have chemotherapy when he, Dr. Newland, knew that his brother had no real potential of survival. I was about to say hope of survival, but he would not deny his brother that hope. And he wrote that offering hope is done with the best of intentions, but the hell whose access road is paved with good intentions becomes too often the hell of suffering through which a misled person must pass before he succumbs to inevitable death. And my point is that, uh, hope when there is hope to offer let's do it but uh but uh false hope is a complication of futile care and futile care is what i want to avoid for uh wanted to avoid for my elderly patients and therefore i think that people have to hope for something else when they receive a difficult diagnosis, is it much more important the doctor counsel that that they work on uh, hope is something that, that they can leave behind with their family, hoping for a heritage that they can leave behind, some appreciation for themselves that they can leave behind. Uh, when I told my mother that she had a median life expectancy of 10 months, we didn't really hope to live that long, but we did hope to live five months uh, long enough to get her to uh, my daughter's wedding, uh, her grand, her first grandchild's uh, wedding. And the good news is we got her there, and, and that was something we could focus on that was more realistic than, um, uh, a, uh, than a, a long survival. What is a good death? What are the emotional attributes of a good death and the physical attributes of a comfortable death? Well, uh, the, a good death has been described brilliantly uh, in uh, several works, and one by, one by Karen Kell, K-E-H-L. She had 13 attributes of a good death, and I will try and uh, call that down to five. The five attributes of a good death that I uh, believe are important are control, meaning uh, the kind of control one can assert by saying no or uh, to a treatment or by saying yes 
to something at home. So control, comfort, the absence of pain is the second most important. Closure, the idea of being able to reconcile with family and friends. Affirmation, meaning being valued by your friends and relatives, having your values appreciated. And trust, uh, surrounding yourself in an environment that's familiar with which you're comfortable and with care uh, givers that you trust. So control, comfort, closure, affirmation, and trust. Uh, But if you flip each one of those attributes, control becomes helplessness, comfort becomes pain, closure becomes isolation, affirmation becomes denial, and trust becomes uh, frustration. Well, that's what those five detributes, if that's the right word, are uh, are defined death in a hospital or in an intensive care unit. So that really defines a good death. And to get to that point, you have to seek an alternative health system, uh, an alternative to the test and treat that makes up uh, aggressive medical care in the United States. And that alternative is palliative care and ultimately hospice care. And uh, I believe that people should when they recognize that a medical treatment is likely to reduce the quality of their life, even if it does prolong their life a little bit, they are at the point where they should be thinking about palliative care. And of course, when you start thinking palliative care, then we want to segue into hospice care. And again, it is an alternative system that protects us from being taken to the emergency room for every little thing and starting over a variety of tests and treatments and getting into that cycle and getting onto that uh, uh, conveyor belt. So, uh, I tr- again, I try to uh, create the thinking that will help people see that point where it is appropriate to say no to aggressive care. And that point is basically defined by some degree of advancing age, anyone over the age of 65, 75, 85 should be thinking this way. Advancing illness, meaning if your disease moves from stage one to stage four, and declining performance status, if we cannot take care of ourselves, if we lose the ability to um, bathe ourselves safely or uh, move ourselves from a chair to a, a bed or a bed to a chair, that activity of daily living uh, when we our performance status declines, our disease advances, and our age, uh, our age advances, and our disease accelerates, those lines intersect, and that is where a person should say no to aggressive treatment, yes to palliative care, and then start seeking uh, the protections of hospice care. If Someone is listening to this as either a patient or a caregiver who is currently facing this scenario. I want to say I highly recommend this book. Um, In it, you recommend specific steps to help them take control of the scenario they're in. Uh, In addition to that, what other resources are out there? Well, um, starting the conversation by checking on the, uh, the, the Five Wishes website, that's a good way to get your talking about a vision of death and then get into the conversation. Uh, The Stanford Letter Project is a way of getting into the conversation. Um, There are prognosis sites uh, usually associated with uh, the best uh, cancer centers. So if you are at uh, MD Anderson or Sloan Kettering and want to study your prognosis, you can check on their site and that will give you uh, insight into questions that you can ask your doctors. Uh, the, uh, my own website, samharrington.com, will connect you with me. I can uh, guide more specific questions or give better answers when I have more specific questions. Um, well, I, that, I, that's all that pops to mind right now. Well, Sam, I, I've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, and I really appreciate it. My final question for you is, what are you working on now? 
Well, I'm uh, two things, or uh, one is uh, I'm trying to promote this book. It has not taken off uh, rapidly, uh, and I want to continue uh, getting the word out because I think it's a it's a reasonable uh, way of uh, of uh, looking at uh, end of life for elderly patients, and it can help people do a better job of that. And I'm looking into a second book. Uh, that discusses either medical complexity or medical futility, because I think these are underrepresented in the uh, in uh, the literature of medicine that that people can understand. There's plenty of academic work on the subject, uh, but it needs to be translated for uh, lay people to better understand uh, the reality in which we live. That sounds very interesting. When it's finished, you'll have to let me know. I I can't wait to read it, and I hope you come back on the show to talk about that book as well. Uh, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and it was an absolute pleasure to, to talk to you today. Take care. Thank you very much, Jeremy.